have just finished our series on Awaken, and now we get to go into Ephesians. And guess what? Ephesians 1 is tough. I'm not going to lie to you. It is difficult to preach as a pastor. It was difficult to study. I spent a lot of time in the Word wrestling with the Word of God. But when you preach the book of the Bible, right, you preach expositionally, you come to hard passages and you preach them. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we go through the book of Ephesians. We're not shying away from what God says according to his word. And we're going to preach the text of scripture as it is written in Ephesians chapter 1. So I encourage you as, you be, as we begin this series to read the book of Ephesians. It'll take you about 20 minutes to read the book of Ephesians. Guess what? That's less than your favorite TV show, okay? So read the book of Ephesians. We're going to have plenty of time to discuss this together. We're actually only going to do really three verses this morning. So that to give you the pace at which we're going. Um, But there's so much in this book. One of the reasons why we chose this book was it is jammed packed with biblical truth. It begins with an understanding in the gospel in the first three chapters. And then once the gospel is laid out and a correct understanding of God's great salvation that he has blessed us with. Now he says to you who understand the gospel, who are in the church, who understand how to live in Christ. Now go do that in every area of your life. And he gives application of this gospel in the final three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians. So our series is that, Gospel in Life. First three chapters, Gospel. The last three chapters in your life. Okay, so strap on your theological big boy pants, okay, as we see the beauty of God's great salvation this morning and the majesty of His grace. All right, in this letter. Klein Snodgrass says this about Ephesians. He says, pound for pound, Ephesians may be the most influential document in history. Lives have been changed through the study of this book. John Mackey, uh, former president of Princeton Seminary, recalled how how, how at the age of 14, he took the Bible into the hills of Scotland and studied the book of Ephesians. And he wrote these words, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitude towards other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been been quickened. I was made alive by the reading of the book of Ephesians. So that is our goal this, this series is to be made alive through the living Word of God, okay? Are you ready for that? All right, let's do it. But one more thing that Ephesians does, which I love, and you guys have heard me multiple times, but Ephesians magnifies the importance of the church, perhaps more than any other New Testament letter. It magnifies the importance of the church. And I, you guys know this, I love God's church. And Ephesus, right? We need to know a little bit about what Ephesus is because it's written to the Ephesian, the church in Ephesus. And, and guess what? Ephesus was a major port city. 
Many trade routes run through the city, so you can imagine there's people from all over the world, a melting pot, coming to one place. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul visits this city, and guess what? They have this temple of gods, false gods, temple of Artemis. One of uh, the, this, this temple is one of the seven wonders of the world. There are many temples in Ephesus at this time. Many of these temples are used for sexual immoral transactions. Think of Sin City. Think of Las Vegas in, the, in olden times in a first century church. And we have an environment that is hostile to the gospel. Paul actually begins sharing the gospel. People begin coming to faith in the gospel in this city, and idol makers, idol makers of Artemis are losing money because people aren't buying their souvenir idols anymore because the church is proclaiming the gospel. And these idol makers get together with some of the mob in the city that is against Christians, against Christianity, and they begin proclaiming in, the, in this hall for two hours, in the stadium for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Guess what? The gospel is moving in Ephesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16 and 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Guess what? When God opens the door for ministry, guess what happens? There are adversaries as well. And that's what's happening is Paul is writing to this church in Ephesians, a place where it's hostile to the gospel, a place in which the gospel has to be central in their life. And Paul spends three years in this city. This city is the pathway of all Asia in which the gospel goes forth. Paul, when he writes this, he writes to a people who he has invested in, a people that he loves. And guess what? This first um, chapter, it's very interesting. Verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence. Verse 3 through 14 is one thought. It is one Sentence. I can't, I can't preach all 14 verses or else we would be here till 2 p.m. today. So I'm going to split it up into three sections, but we're going to read it together, okay? So let's stand in honor reading God's word, and we'll read Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start in, in verse 3. We'll read all the way through 14, but we're only going to study 3 through 6 this morning, okay? So 3 through 14. Ephesians 9.76 in the Bible in front of you. If you don't have that, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. Love to open up to it. To Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You may be seated Let's pray. That's amazing text of Scripture. You could study that for days upon days upon days and never get enough, okay? So I hope we're, 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 I hope we're out on time today with three verses, but we're going to try. All right, we're going to pray first. Father, we do ask you that this morning would be about you. Father, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have a plan for us, that you have adopted us as children. Father, we thank you that we are blessed to be sons and daughters of the King. Father, we know that we are unworthy, and yet you love us. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, may we just be reminded of that love over and over again in our hearts and our minds so that you are the forefront. That you are our purpose in life. That we may be holy and blameless, not based upon our own deeds, but based upon your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see this, in the, especially in the first three verses here, the beautiful picture of adoption. Adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Some of you in this room may have been adopted or you may have adopted a child. And God shows his beautiful love, his beautiful gospel through the picture of adoption. There's, there's so many attributes of the family that, that God points us to his love, his perfect love. And, and one of those is, is the, the loving father who chooses to adopt a child and that's the picture here in which Paul presents to the church as you being saved. God has chosen you. A father says to his son, I choose for you to be my son, not because you are the strongest, not because you bring value, not because you bring something to the table, not because you are good, not because you have done anything to offer, but because I love you. 
I want to extend my grace to you, my unmerited favor to you. I choose for you to be my child. I've given my love to you through Christ. This is what Paul is saying. Christ has died in your place so that you may be holy and blameless before God to the praise of his glorious grace. And it is all because of my love for you. I did this. I loved you. I heard the other day about about, uh, pastors talking about this um, and about this this kind of love. And uh, I I, I heard this illustration of this pastor talking to his daughter. And I I actually did this with my daughter the other night before we went to bed. And I had to teach her these concepts of a father's love for his daughter. But this is what he said, and this is what I said to my daughter. Um, I said, does daddy love you because you're beautiful? And she responded to me, no, but I am beautiful, right? Does daddy love you because you're smart? She responded to me, no, but I am smart, Daddy. I said, does Daddy love you because you're going to be a great leader one day? She said, no, but I will be a great leader, Daddy. Then I asked her the question. I didn't teach her this. I taught her the first part. And I said, why does your Daddy love you? She said, because I'm your daughter. Amen. God had a plan, and his plan was for you to be his child. This is our grateful adoption as children. Verse 1 of chapter 1, we didn't read it, but Paul says here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, the apostle Paul calls himself as one of the apostles who was untimely born. He has been radically transformed by Christ. He was once persecuting the church. Now he goes around proclaiming this great salvation in which he himself has experienced. And that God saved him miraculously, just like I talked about with Sam. God saved him miraculously. And he became God's chosen instruments to the Gentiles. That was Paul's purpose. He goes around preaching this gospel in Ephesus and across the globe. And he has been given authority by God to write this letter as an apostle. And his apostleship is by the will of God, not on his own doing, not because he deserved it, but because God willed it. God desired it. And the letter in which he writes this is written to the saints. Saints are God's people who are holy because they are in Christ. And Paul will use this concept of in Christ, and he'll use it throughout this book 36 times. Guess what it means to be in Christ? It means to be a child of God, to have salvation by faith. These people who are in Christ place their faith in Christ. They believe in Christ. Verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in his greeting, grace to you. Two things set the tone for this letter. Grace to you, which is the grace of God bestowed upon your life and thus resulting in peace, true peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So even in his greeting, grace to you and peace from God, guess what he's pointing to? He's pointing us to the gospel. When we greet one another as the church, we are to point people to the gospel of Christ. Grace to you and peace. And how do we obtain that peace? It's grace through understanding what Christ has done on the cross for us and putting our faith in that. Pointing people to the beauty of Christ. That's what the church does. This is what we are about at Northwest. Beginning in verse 3, and this is where it gets difficult, I've already said it is one sentence all the way through verse 14. If you've ever read my emails, you know this is where I get my run-on sentences. I just get excited and just keep going and, and going and going until um, it's 202 words, right? And that's what Paul does. There's so much to unpack here. We must see what God is revealing about himself. In this one sentence, just to break it down for you, the triune God is on display. Verses 3 through 6 highlight we are chosen by the Father. 7 through 10 highlight that we are redeemed by the Son. 11 through 14 highlight that we are assured by the Spirit. And guess what? We also see this past, present, and future work of God in salvation, highlighting in the past that he predestined us. He had a plan for us. Present, we have redemption through his blood. And now we have the Holy Spirit, and we await our future inheritance for eternity in glory. Think about this. Our God is eternal. Therefore, our salvation is eternal. He predestined us before the foundation of the world and carries that through into eternal life with him. All right, so let's look at verse 3 here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And, and if, we, if we leave this out, I think we leave out something major in this section of Scripture. Though, therefore, I'm... I'm I'm using this as, as even one of our, our first points this morning. And, and it's simply this. The church is blessed. The church, the people of God. When I, when I mean, when I say the church, every time I say the church, it, I'm going to say it's about the people of God. Not the organization, not the building. It is the people in this room who, who represent the family of God. Okay? So, Verse 3 sets the tone for this huge sentence. It's actually bookended by the praise of his glory in verse 3 and in verse 14. 
And this is what we see in God's people. And this is what Paul is talking about in God's people. A heart of thanksgiving flowing out of God's people. When God's people understand the greatness of God and his rich and the richness of his mercy, all they can do is praise this glorious God. Guess what? Praise is due to God because of his grace and his mercy and his love that he has lavished on those who are in Christ. A great scripture to memorize for you and your children, even children at a young age, is James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. Guess what? If we understand this correctly, a heart of gratefulness to our God breeds a heart of humility, understanding our need for God. A heart of humility breeds a heart that places God first, others second, and yourself third. And guess what? Depression, anxiety, loneliness, pride, selfishness, all these feelings that we feel seem to wash down the river of thankfulness and gratefulness in our life. What does that mean? That means we need to be thankful and grateful that we are blessed as children of God. So, it's officially fall. That means that Christmas is not too far away. You saw the, the, uh, the weather changing. And before there were Hallmark movies, some of you guys who, who know this, uh, this, these older movies, there was something called White Christmas, okay? Some of you have heard of that before, Bing Crosby. And there's a part in the movie in which someone can't sleep, right? They get a glass of milk and Bing does his thing and he, he sings this song and he says, count your blessings instead of sheep and you'll fall asleep counting your blessings, right? I, I've always wanted to sing and I've never done it. My wife is cringing right now, but I don't usually do that. Just, just honest, honest truth. But I thought I might give my Bing Crosby impression. But it's true. Count your blessings instead of sheep and you'll fall asleep counting your blessings. Right? The gratefulness and thankfulness causes you to rest in the blessing of God. It's, it's simple. And these spiritual blessings are not only here on this earth in the Holy Spirit, but they're also await the fullness of those future blessings in heaven. We await that. We, we long for that. You know, there is no such thing as an ungrateful Christian. There is really no such thing. One cannot have faith in Christ, what he has done on the cross for us as sinners, and not be thankful that God has provided Christ in our place. We can't do it. So what if you're ungrateful? What, what if I'm sitting in this room? I mean, all of us from time to time are ungrateful. We know that. 
What if, what if I live my life to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it? My, my charge to you is to look at the beauty of God to look at his great salvation and allow the gospel message, the good news of Christ, to transform your heart and your mind. I, I try to preach the gospel to myself every day. Why? Because it transforms my heart and my mind. How do I get to know this great God? Well, one is study the word. I challenge you to read the book of Ephesians. You should. Ask God to reveal himself to you in prayer. Get into community with people who show the gospel to you. They show the love of God to you. And then show the gospel to other people through love and action. Worship with your life. These are some things. Verse 4. Now you get into the real good stuff, right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we're blessed who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly paces, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay? Now, again, not words... Not my words, God's words. This is point number two. The church is chosen. The church is chosen, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul says that God chose us, that he predestined us. These words cause some people to tense up, but they should not. Why? Because they're biblical words. They are designed to inspire awe and worship of this great God to the praise of his glorious grace. This is why we were chosen, for his glory. That's why the Lord wanted me to preach last week, because he knew that this would be such a difficult concept, except it is for his glory, for his name's sake, all of it. Choosing people to display the glory of God is not something new in the Bible, right? The, the Bible shows this election throughout the story of God. Just as he chose to create man in his own image for his glory, he chose Abraham. He could have chosen any nation or, or any person to make a great nation. He chose Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. He chose the nation of Israel to be a light to the nations in which Christ would come through. He chose the 12 disciples to bear fruit and to multiply. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Okay? And then he says this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Amen? God chooses so that we don't have to boast, saying, I am great enough that God chose me. He chose that which is nothing to bring to nothing things that are. 
God is saving us for his glory. So let us praise him. God had a plan, and it was not happenstance that you came to faith in Christ. Okay? It was not happenstance. And here and in multiple passages of Scripture, it tells us that God chose us. Paul would probably be the, the first one to admit that he was chosen. Why? Because he, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He was there persecuting the church. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was an enemy to God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved Paul, even when he was dead in his trespasses, made him alive together with Christ. By grace, he was saved. We understand that. Paul understands that. And the Lord says to Paul, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000, basically um, a statement of faith for Baptists um, that we hold to, says this about election. And I read this because um, we all hold to this. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So what does that mean, <laughs> right? I mean, you read that and you're like, oh, okay, that's a lot of words and they're big words and sometimes we talk about this and it's oftentimes confusing or frustrating. Sometimes it makes us to feel if we don't know all the answers. Sometimes people make us feel as if they do know all the answers. But guess what? God is infinitely bigger and infinitely wiser than us, okay? <laughs> we know that election promotes humility. We know that it excludes boasting for us. We know that God does the saving, but it's sometimes difficult for our three-pound minds to describe the infinite nature of God, okay? I think we must admit that there is great mystery in this doctrine of election, the passage points to what God is doing before the foundation of the world. He even uses the word mystery in verse 9, referring to his will. And God is God and we are not. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it like this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. Now, no doubt in Ephesians 1, he's revealing to us some of the things about salvation and God's purposes and his plans so that we may praise him for his glorious grace, right? We understand that he is revealing that to us. But there are other things that he is not revealing to us, and we, and we will get to those in a minute. And some may, may disagree on the finer points of this mystery, but that doesn't mean that we as a church divide over these issues. 
I don't call myself a, a Calvinist. I don't call myself an Arminian. I don't call myself a, a Bon Jovian. I don't even know what that is, okay? I preach Christ and him crucified, okay? I am a follower of Jesus. I preach the word of God. I am a Christian, okay? But there are all sorts of questions when we read this text, and you guys may be asking those questions in your mind. What about free will? Why does God choose some and he doesn't choose others? We're going to answer some of those questions or try to answer some of those questions. But let's let's look first at what the text does tell us. Some people think that the text means that God knew I would choose him. Somehow God would see into the future and see that I would receive him so then he would choose me. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying before we were even in the mother's womb, before the foundation of the world, he chose us for adoption as sons. Before the foundation of the world. An eternal God for an eternal salvation. We know that he has set his love on us. Therefore, we ought to praise him. We should rest in that fact that he is the one saving us, frankly, because if it was up to us, I think I would mess it up. Verse 14, the big run-on sentence. There are 24 verbs or action sequences to describe God's work. And God does 20 of them. And we do four. God blesses, he chooses, he predestines, he adopts, he bestows grace, he redeems, he forgives, he lavishes, he makes known his purposes, he unites together in Christ, he works, he seals. Listen to the four we do. We listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. Amen? It's beautiful. So did he choose you because you were good or you need? He needed you on his team? Or he knew that you would bring something to the table? He talks about Israel and he talks about, God talks about Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. He talks about saving them from Egypt, choosing them as his people. And he says this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of peoples but it is because the Lord loves you. That's why I chose you. The Lord loves you. It's not because we had something to offer to God that we were good enough. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, he will go on to say we're dead in our trespass and sins, not partially dead, as in Princess Bride, half dead, right? If you've seen the movie, you'll get the, the context. But fully dead, Okay. We were fully dead. Romans 5 tells us we were enemies of God. So God chooses to adopt us as children because of what? His love. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. I have no questions that God chose me because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never have chosen me afterwards. (laughs) 
And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. (laughs) So I feel like I'm forced to accept this doctrine, okay? (laughs) That's what Charles Spurgeon said. So does this violate our free will? That's another question. The Bible says that our choice is never against our will. Our choice is in concert with God's will. In some places, God says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. But in others, Jesus said, whosoever will may come. The famous American Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, often uses an illustration to help make people a sense of their election, of their chosen. He asked them to imagine a cross like the one in which Jesus died only so large that it had a door in it. And over the door were these words from Revelation at the end of the book, whosoever will may come. These words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Every man, woman, and child who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus and enter eternal life. And on the other side of the door, a happiest surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. From the inside, anyone glancing back can see the words from Ephesians written above the door, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. See, election is best understood in hindsight, for it is only after coming to Christ that one can know whether he has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find that God made a decision for them in the eternity past. Jesus explains how this works in John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, the book of Ephesians is written to the church, the people of God, to bring comfort to them that God has saved them. They are blessed. Now go live in that love. Russell Moore said this, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secured, secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God is not treating us like puppets made of meat forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. That's what we need to know. That it's for the glory of God and God had a plan for us to be saved. And there, when we receive Christ upon the cross and we receive what God has done for us, we are saying, guess what? We are saved. That God has saved us that God had a plan for us. So you see, the choice to come and the Father's drawing goes hand in hand. The Greek word here for draw in John 6, is helkua. It carries the idea of a desperately hungry man being drawn to food. That is what God did to us. He created us a hunger for us to know Jesus. And that hunger drew us to Jesus. God, through the preaching of the gospel, through the power of the Spirit, changes our hearts so that we begin to desire God. That's what he does. So the second question that I'm going to address briefly 
is, well, why didn't God choose everybody? That's a pretty big question, right? I mean, let me say two things real quick. One, remember, God is not obligated to extend salvation to anyone. Salvation is by grace through faith. What is fair is that we all perish. That any of us have a chance to receive forgiveness is the free gift of undeserved grace. And God made that possible through the cross of Christ in giving his life in our place. But second, there's a part of this that we don't understand. That we cannot No, this is the mystery of God in which it sets in because Scripture never presents a lack of God's choosing as the reason why someone didn't come. Never presents that. Not once. It is the responsibility of man to respond to the gospel of grace and to respond to Christ upon the cross in faith. That is the responsibility of man. Matthew 23, 37 says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathered her brood under her wings, and you would not. You would not. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires all people to be saved. The Bible itself ends with whosoever will may come. Revelation 22, 17. So this mystery, right? We don't understand it all. And somebody who says that they do, well, I don't know. If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. And if you're not, the Bible says it's because you have chosen to reject God. The Lord is not willing that you should perish, but you should come to him in repentance and faith in him. You see, Paul writes this for believers who have placed their faith in God, that they should rest in the fact that God has chosen them for adoption. They should rest in the fact that they are part of God's plan. They rest at night knowing God saved them so that they have no boasting. They rest in Christ. If you're here today and you don't have an understanding or don't know where your standing is in your relationship to God, you don't know that you're a child of God. Repent and believe in the gospel message of Christ. That Christ came to bring salvation to those who were dead in their own trespasses and their own sins. I'm going to say one more thing. We don't understand how how God orchestrates all this. One thing we do understand is that God has a plan. We preached last Wednesday night in our pastor's study on the book of Joseph. Joseph says this at the end of his life. He goes through pain and suffering, his, his brothers sell him into slavery. He, he is falsely accused, thrown into prison. He's forgotten in prison. God elevates him to second in command in Pharaoh of Egypt, over Egypt, mighty, powerful Egypt. Joseph says this, what man intended for evil, what man chose for evil, God was working for good 
And we, we, don't, we see this. We see this. We see this in the gospel. But what about the, the people? Christ was sent for a purpose, to die in our place. What about the people who, who, who called for him to be crucified? They were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Were they, were they using their own decisions, and yet God had a plan in their own decisions for his glory so that people would be saved? They're the cross of Christ. Does God have not, if he has a plan that Christ would die on the cross, that three days later would be resurrected from the dead, does he not have the same plan for you? Yes, he does. God chose you. He has a plan for you. Repent and believe in the gospel. Last thing I want to mention here is the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The last part here is the church is loved. The church is blessed. The church is chosen. The church is loved. You can't read these three verses and not just be saturated with the love that God has for you. He didn't have to do anything. Yet he did. Throughout the pages of this book, the gospel message, the good news message is that God loves sinners and he wants to rescue them. And he does this through Christ, in which we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of his grace. And guess what it's about? It's about the, the praise of his glorious grace. It's all for his name's sake. God is doing something here that's indescribable. A love that brings life. From death. This holy and righteous God, this just God, would come down and take my place on the cross in which I deserved. He would rescue me from a pit of destruction, from eternity without Him. And guess what? This is not something that we just get over. This is not just something that just happens in our life, that we're saved and then we just go about our day. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. It brings a new life a new heart, a new mind, new desires. The love that God has blessed us with in his adoption for us as sons and daughters of the king changes us. Let me continue reading after Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. 
because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Guess what? We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Christ. Why? Because the love has changed us. Because God's grace has transformed our hearts and our minds. And it says in 18, it continues on, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what does that mean? That means the love of Christ controls us now, that we do not live for ourselves any longer. And guess what? He has now put that love in our hearts and minds to share that love, to share the message of the gospel with everyone else. Give me three seconds. Three seconds. Now we understand God's plan. God's plan was to save you, for you to walk in the grace and the love of God, and then for you to share that with others. Okay? And Paul is writing this to the believers in Ephesus going, God has a plan for you. God has designed you for a purpose for my glory. Don't shy away from your purpose. God has a plan. So, just in closing, I'm going to give this example. I think it's good. Does God know the day you'll die? Yeah, he does. Has he appointed that day? Yeah, he has. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live? What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God appointed for you to die? (laughs) Right? Sometimes we need to just quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Because eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. At the end of the day, we can argue this stuff till we're blue in the face. Yet God has a plan. And his plan is to walk with this great God in the gospel of grace to have hope for eternal life in Christ Jesus and to share that love with other people. So just eat. Don't get concerned about all the other junk and walk with God. Trust that he had a plan for you.
before the beginning of time. Walk with him. Share this love with others.